If you guys are new here, we started a series going through the book of Ruth at the beginning of summer. We're now in chapter 3. Um, once we're done with Ruth, I'm excited because uh, we're going to be starting a brand new series uh, going through the book of Mark, which will take us longer than a year, uh, maybe a year, year and a half, maybe something like that. And uh, I'm excited about being able to go through that. We're going to jump into the book of uh, Ruth right now, chapter 3. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work on this great story. God, we ask you right now that you would just help us, enable us. We need your, uh, your wisdom, Father, to understand what your word is all about. God, we need eyes to see. We need ears to hear. And so, God, right now, we just confess that on our own, we don't have the ability to understand this stuff. We can walk away with head knowledge, but our hearts can remain completely untouched, unmoved. And God, what we need more than anything is not just simply head knowledge. What we need is to have our hearts moved, transformed, and changed. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. So we just give ourselves to you, and we ask, God, that you would do the work that only you alone can do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, Ruth chapter 3. I want to give you a very fast background for those of you that might be new. Uh, Ruth is a story that starts out talking about a lady by the name of Naomi and her husband named Elimelech. Uh, they started out the story in the area of Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem means house of bread. And in the irony of the story, uh, there's no bread in the house of bread, and which leads them to basically try to find some other place, some other location to live uh, through some circumstances. However, it works out. They end up going about 60 miles east to the region called Moab, and uh, which would be sort of modern-day Jordan. And so they make their way over to Moab, uh, Ru- uh, Naomi, her uh, husband, Elimelech, and her two sons, Malon and Kilion. And uh, what ends up happening is her two sons, Malon and Kilion, end up getting married to natives of the land uh, that are called uh, you know, Moabites, Moabite women. Uh, the two women that they end up marrying is one is named Orpah, the other is named Ruth. Um, in a series of events, we don't know exactly what happened, but we do know that uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and Naomi's two sons, Malon and Kilion, also died. So you have Naomi now left with her two daughters-in-law. Naomi hears uh, by way of rumor that there's food back in the region of Bethlehem where she originally came from. So she now decides to make her way back to go into the region of Bethlehem again. And uh, her two daughters-in-law start out on the journey going back with her. In the process of events, uh, Naomi discourages her daughters-in-law from following her because there's really not much hope for her two daughters-in-law, uh, who are foreigners, they're women, they're Moabites, and on top of that, to add insult to injury, they've been married for 10 years, neither one of them had a baby, which means they're, at least in the eyes of everybody else, infertile. They're damaged goods. Nobody wants a woman that can't have a baby. That was just the way that it was back in that day. So there was no hope, at least in the eyes of Naomi, for her two daughters-in-law to follow her. But in a series of events, uh, One of Naomi's daughters-in-law by the name of Orpah decides to go back. She did just kind of the typical normal thing which anybody would do. But Ruth does something that's very out of the ordinary. Ruth literally chooses to sacrifice everything. Um, And she decides to basically follow her mother-in-law into the unknown and really perhaps even into hostility. She has no idea what the future holds for her. But what she does know, because we know at the end of chapter 1, that Ruth miraculously gets converted. She meets God. Her life has changed as a result of being a transformed person who's met God. 
who's been transformed, changed. She also falls in love with God's people, uh, the Jewish people. And so therefore she makes that statement. Wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Wherever you die, I will die. Wherever you lay down, I will lay down. I'll be there with you no matter what happens. My commitment is to your God and to your people. And I will follow you for the rest of my days. It's an amazing story. Well, the two major issues that happen in the book, in the story, two major problems are food and family. Um, the two things they don't have. So the next chapter, chapter two, uh, Ruth wakes up in the morning, decides to go out and try to find some food. She just so happens to find a field that is owned by a guy by the name of Boaz. This plays in the story of great with great significance because it turns out this guy Boaz happens to be some sort of a distant relative of Naomi's uh, dead husband. It's very important. Um, again, we spent some time a few weeks ago taking a look at some of these laws that were part of the culture of that ancient day. They don't make a lot of sense to us because we just don't live according to these laws or these uh, cultural ideas, but this is the way it was. So uh, there was a lot of respect to the both living and the dead. So in other words, if you lived in that culture and your husband or your brother died, the idea was you wanted to preserve that name. You wanted to carry that name on. It was an idea a way of saying we want the name to live on forever. And so what happened was when Naomi finds out that she, her, her dead husband actually has a living relative, she immediately gets excited because in her mind this means that there's hope. Uh, because what this means is that this guy is now called a kinsman redeemer. It means that it puts him in the, in the running for not only being a, a relative, he's a kin, kinsman, uh, but he's also a redeemer. It means he has the ability to purchase back land that maybe once belonged to Naomi's uh, dead husband. Um, back in that culture, women's rights were uh, uniquely and distinctly attached to men. It's the way it was. And again, we can argue with it what we want. We can disagree with it what we want. The Bible just is not going to uh, give us kind of the leverage to argue with it. It's just going to describe it. This is the way it was. This is how it worked. And uh, it's, it's not necessarily even given to say this is how God wants us to live. It's more so... Uh, backdrop to say this is the dark backdrop no matter how dark it was or different shade of gray it was this is the backdrop of which god's grace began to show because even though back in that culture women's rights were very limited it's as if god wants to come on the scene and say doesn't matter what the culture says i am the one at the end of the day who gives everybody their rights male female bond slave free whoever doesn't matter i made them i have the freedom and the ability to give people rights and declare freedom over them, no matter who they are. It doesn't matter who they are. And so we see that played in the story. So Naomi's excited. And that kind of leads us to chapter 3, where now that Naomi knows that there's a sense of hope, because not only was food brought in, because uh, Ruth comes home with a truckload of food, as if, uh, you know, just massive boxes of Costco food she comes home with. And uh, there's a sense of revived hope. That God has shown his kindness and his favor to us, even though we thought life was over, even though we felt like God had abandoned us, he has not abandoned us. He loves us. And maybe for some of you, that's what you need to hear today, is that even though you may find yourself in a place of darkness, where it seems bleak, where it seems as if even the hand of Yahweh has turned against you, uh, the story of Ruth should actually give you a breath of hope that God has not altogether abandoned you. That's, that's such good news. And some of us got to hear that, to realize that, to understand that I have, I have not been utterly forgotten or forsaken by God. That was what 
uh, Naomi realized God has not forsaken me, that God is actually working behind the scenes. We've been saying this all along, that sometimes, perhaps in the most darkest, difficult circumstances and situations in our life, it's, it's possible that in those moments that God's actually plotting, plotting for your greatest blessing, and that's what was happening with Naomi and Ruth. That guy was actually plotting and doing something behind the scenes that they weren't even aware of. They weren't even privy to that knowledge. That guy was plotting, doing something on behalf of them that was going to blow their minds. And literally change the whole world. Because through uh, this woman who had lost her husband and her two sons, Naomi, and through this lady, Ruth, who had been barren, not been able to have a child, who would have been damaged goods, that through these two ladies, God was actually plotting to bring them in, to invite them in, to make them a part of the lineage of the Messiah himself. It's amazing what God was doing. They had no clue that that's what God was doing in their life, but that's what was happening. So Naomi finds out that Boaz is the owner of this field, that uh, Boaz actually has shown great favor and kindness to Ruth, and so this gives her great hope. Now, I've been trying to bat down as best as I can any type of romanticized Jane Austen-ish versions of the book of Ruth that you may have had or they may have brought into the storyline uh, because, frankly, one, they're just not biblical. Uh, for two, they're, they're, they're not in, in sync with realism. Three, when we read our Bibles, we've got to read it within a historical context. In other words, when we read our Bibles, it's not okay to just kind of read it in light of a 21st century culture and then try to make sense out of it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. We can, uh, but it's better to understand it in its cultural, historical context and then try to derive any types of uh, application and understanding from that story. So with that being said, what we're going to see now is Naomi basically uh, plots some sort of a, a, a plan, devises a plan in order to kind of capitalize upon Boaz's already displayed kindness to Ruth so that she could try to play matchmaker, all right? Uh, if you ever seen Fiddle on the Roof, uh, remember matchmaker? That's kind of what Naomi becomes. She's like, but, but she's trying hard to demonstrate kindness to Ruth in this whole context. So with that being said, we'll take a look at First of all, the plan, and then uh, about verses 1 through 5, then we'll take a look at the modified plan. So the plan, first of all, verse 1 says this. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I, not seek, should I not seek rest for you that you may be well, that all may be well with you? Um, what's kind of amazing about this verse is the story in chapter 1 starts out, tells us about Naomi, that Naomi has gone through some of the most difficult trials and hardships of her entire life. In fact, at the end of chapter 1, she, uh, beginning of chapter 2, she comes in contact with her old family and friends from the region of uh, Bethlehem, and she says, don't call me uh, Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. But she says, call me Mara because I'm bitter now. I'm no longer happy. I'm no longer um, satisfied. I'm no longer full of joy. I'm full of bitterness. And God has brought this bitterness upon me. But what we see here in chapter 3 is a total change of heart. It's an about face in the life of Naomi. What happened? What's absolutely amazing, what happened with Naomi, was that actually through Ruth, when Ruth brings this food back, because remember the, the first dilemma was no food, second dilemma, no family. When Ruth returns from working all day in the field and she's got this huge sack 
of barley that she brings means that they're going to eat, they're going to have food, and there's a promise of having food throughout the entire harvesting season that Naomi's like, oh my gosh, God, you've not left me. So literally, here's, here's what's happened. The hesed kindness of God has changed a bitter old lady. <laughs> you guys, some of us, we go through difficult times in our lives, and, and bitterness is oftentimes what happens to us. All of us face calamity. Um, all of us might face different levels of calamities, varying degrees of calamity throughout our life. And we oftentimes don't have any control as to what type of calamity befalls us. We do have the ability to some degree to control how it affects us. Do we become bitter? Do we become somebody that's full of, of difficulty and vile and toxicity and hardness and, and, and difficulty to be around? Or do we allow ourselves to come out, somehow remain soft, even though we might get a little bit of an edge about ourselves, but we, we come out of it with a sense of confidence and trust? Well, what happened with Naomi can only be described that what changed her heart from being hardened and bitter and full of just vile pain to becoming someone who's like, you know what, Ruth, I really care about you. And all I'm going to do now for the rest of my life is I'm going to work with as much strength and ability I can to make sure that you're well taken care of. It was the kindness of God that changed Naomi. I think one of the greatest evidences to find out, are, are we truly changed? Is, is by asking ourselves, like, because people that are full of pain and bitterness and hardship, a lot of times one of the things that goes along with that, or another type of characteristic trait that goes along with these types of people, is, is they, they, they live very self-focused lives. They don't want to talk about anybody else. You know, you're going through a hard time, you're like, I'm having a hard time. Well, you know what? Well, my hard time is twice as hard as your hard time. You're like, really? Wow, I feel so much more encouraged. Thank you. I don't ever want to talk to you again. And, and, and now I'm bitter. You made me bitter, right? And, and, and those types of people, they don't know how to get out of their circle, their sphere of themselves, in which everything is consumed about their pain, their hardship, their bitterness. But that's not Naomi anymore. Naomi somehow has cracked out of that, broken out of that. Some sort of trajectory has, or has taken hold of her and moved her out of that and put her into a whole new realm of life where now she's saying, all I care about is Ruth. We don't always know if that's us. I mean, the reality is, is that, I mean, if we're really honest and truly wanting to let God's love not just sort of, sort of shine on us, but actually penetrate us to the where we now become different people as a result of God's kindness, sometimes it's good and worthwhile, you know, to even just ask people. You know, I mean, if you're married... You can ask your spouse. And you, might, you might need to ask it this way, all right? You just, just kind of lay the foundation. You might need to ask it this way. Sweetheart, all right, if, if I promise not to get defensive or angry or frustrated, if I promise to not even say anything, um, would you answer a question for me? Uh, yeah. Am I self-centered, egotistical, and only concerned about myself? Like, like honestly, is that, is that the way I am? And you might be shocked. Because you might find out that, yes, you are. That's how you live. That's how you always act. That's what you always do. And I'm telling you, people that don't live like that are people that have been penetrated by the gospel. 
the good news that God has demonstrated undeserved kindness upon you. And it's not just something that you mentally consider. It's not just something that you assent to. It's not just something that you just look at and shake your head and you're like, ah, God's love. Sure, I agree with John 3.16. No, that's not it. It involves that. It's not less than that, but it's way more than that. Like, has God's love actually penetrated through you? Has, has it healed you? doesn't mean it's taken away all the difficulty, the hardship, or the shame. But has it healed you? Has it given you hope? And one of the best ways to answer that is, is how do you respond to other people around you that are in pain? Do you even see their pain? Do you even know their pain? If the answer to that is, I never see anybody else's pain except mine. The answer that may come back to you is that what you need more than anything is God's love to shine, not just on you, but through you, to penetrate you, to change you. That's what happened with Naomi. She was a changed woman. God's kindness literally finally broke through the thick, dark clouds of her life and brought about a a transformed heart. And so that's why she says, my daughter... I just want to seek rest for you. And she says, is not Boaz our relative whose young women you, who, you, uh, you were with, that it might be well with you? Uh, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you see? Uh, see, he is winnowing barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Uh, first of all, I want to point out that one of the things that's interesting in this book, and I think this book is one of the, one of the great examples of God's sovereignty. And what I mean by that is, uh, it's really, in short, how I define that is, is a picture that displays a big God. A big God. Not a small God. Most of the time, the way we try to define God is we actually, sometimes even in our efforts, we reduce God. And what we don't need to do is reduce God. What we need to do is reflect God. And reflect God properly and that is to identify god as a big god because i'm telling you right now that's the only thing that will sustain you through life's difficulties you say i have never been through life's difficulties cheer up i promise you you will all right they will come that's what happens we live in a broken fallen destroyed world it's a beautiful world but it's a beautiful world that is constantly punctuated by lots of pain and hardship that's the world we live in and yet at the same time what we need to see is a picture of a big God who, who actually cares for us. And, and what happens here is even though this, this story is all about God who's sovereign, who's at work, who's doing things behind the scenes, even when it seems as if there's nothing but silence, God's working in the silence. That's how God's working. That's what he's doing. It's, it's amazing because even in the midst of this constant ongoing theme of God's sovereignty, what we see is cooperation with God's people where they're working hard. I mean, Ruth doesn't wake up in the morning chapter two and be like, you know, God, please provide food for me. I'm going to go back to sleep. Like Ruth is like, God, we provide food. And she goes out and she works maybe a 15 hour day. And it was in the process of working. So my point is that the belief in a sovereign God in our working in cooperation with God are not mutually exclusive. But that's how God works. Somehow in God's plan, in God's sovereignty, he's actually chosen to use human, human beings like you and I 
fallen as we are, flawed as we are, compromised as we are, confused as we are, mixed pleasures, mixed desires, conflicting desires, constantly. God chooses to use us as messed up and flawed as we are. It's all part of his sovereignty. That's what we see in this great book. And so, you know, Naomi's like, here, I believe God has even more for you. God wants to take care of you. So here's what we want you to do. Uh, we're going to pray. We're going to seek God. We're going to trust God. But take a shower, put on some makeup, uh, perfume, and some nice clothing and go down there because all that's really good. So here, here's a biblical mandate. Women and men, take showers. It's, it's biblical. It's good. And uh, God just might use it. You may end up getting a spouse out of it. But the point of the matter is, you're like, really, is that the sermon today? Yes, there you go. Anyways, the point of the matter is, is that God just used all these things. And so Ruth, um, out of obedience and love for her mother-in-law, ends up doing this. And she's about to go down to the threshing floor. And now we kind of begin to see this plan as it gets a little bit modified. In verse 6, it goes on, it says this. And so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. Now, Threshing floors uh, were the place, they were kind of this community spot where back in the day, like at the end of a harvest, um, they would have this big mound of wheat or barley. In this case, it was barley. And uh, you would have this big mound, but usually about two hours before sundown, there in the region of Bethlehem and uh, Israel, uh, especially in more of the mountainous regions, which is no doubt where Bethlehem was at, um, there would be these strong winds that would pick up. And that was perfect for threshing floors because if you had this big old mound of barley, uh, you would have barley that was edible and usable, but it would be mixed with this chaff, kind of like this hard uh, substance. It was kind of like uh, the stalk, you know, like chewing on grass or something like that. It was just not good. Um, you couldn't do anything with it. You didn't want it in your bread. So they would separate it. And the way they would separate it were at these threshing floors. So you'd imagine a lot of testosterone, a lot of dudes, a lot of guys. They worked all day, not only all day long, but these guys worked all season long. All right. This is the tail end of the harvest at the end of the harvest, at the end of a long day, at the end of a threshing, they would throw the grain up in the air. The wind would would catch all the chaff and blow it away. And yet, yet the grain, the kernel itself would fall down on the ground because it's heavier than the chaff. And so at the end of that day, the guys would eat, they'd party, they drink. Uh, threshing floors were also notorious uh, spots, especially at the end of the, uh, the harvest for prostitution. And so a lot of women would show up at the threshing floors because, again, like I said, there's a lot of guys. They all worked hard. Uh, they're all drunk. Uh, they all ate a lot of money, and they all have a lot of money in their pockets. Uh, ate a lot of food, and they got money in their pockets. They didn't eat a lot of money. Uh, and and they, were, they, were, they were ready and waiting for some sort of fun, and that's typically what happened on threshing floors. So what Naomi is asking her daughter-in-law to do is very, very risky. I mean, e even questionable. Uh, I, I read some Jewish scholars and also even some Christian scholars that, that would straight up argue that what Naomi did was wrong. She should not have done that. It was horrible motherly advice. I mean, it'd be almost equivalent to like telling a daughter, being like, hey, sweetheart, there's a fraternity down. They just finished their pledges, and that's the perfect place to go find a husband and uh, go around maybe two in the morning, all right? Two in the morning would be perfect time for them. All the bars are closed, and, and they are all kicked out, and everybody's drunk. Perfect time to go find a husband at the fraternity house, at the end of the pledging. Like, no mom, if you loved your kid, would ever do something like that. In some ways, that's kind of what was going on. So there, there's, let me also say this. There's a lot of sexual suggest, suggestiveness in this story. A lot of suggestiveness within a story. A lot of ambiguity. 
There's there's not a lot of clear details as to exactly what's going on. Like, Like, what does it mean to lift up a skirt? And what does it mean to put that skirt over you? And when Ruth goes and lays down next to Boaz, how was she laying? Was it perpendicular? Was it was she alongside of him? Like, there's a lot of details that are left unknown. And the author writes it this way to at least create a sense of intense sensuality and suggestivity that's going on right here. So to say exactly what it is would be to kind of go beyond the scripture and add things that just simply aren't there. So what I'll do is I'll just kind of let you think about that and let that be the extent. Because that seems to be the way the author writes this without giving us any detail, but just enough detail to allow our minds to begin to wonder, like, what's going on here? Uh, this seems really weird. Uh, it's telling a daughter-in-law to go to a very risky, sketchy place where most prostitutes are kind of found. And she's going to go uh, be a part of kind of something that's, that's it was, at the end of the day, it's going to end up being where Ruth actually asks a guy to marry her. Like, okay, so this is one of those perfect passages in the scripture where uh, you need to just kind of step back a little bit and be like, you need to understand something in the Bible. Okay, for one... Not every passage you read is uh, prescriptive, all right? You, you need to know that, right? So, so if you're a woman here, you're single, you're like, oh, the Bible says, I just read, my pastor read to me, Ruth, that she went to the frat house and asked a drunk guy to marry him, and, and, and that's what I should do. Like, the Bible also says Judas went out and hung himself, all right? There's a lot of things the Bible says that we're not supposed to do. It's just simply descriptive, all right? There are passages in the Bible that are prescriptive. That means it tells us here's what we should do. This is not one of those passages. It's just simply describing what happened on a night, in a very dark night, where there's a lot of rampant sin going on, but somehow in the midst of this very potentially difficult, deadly scenario, um, it sets the stage for one of the most unbelievable responses of the gospel ever. It's amazing. And sometimes God works that way, where he allows the stage to be set to where the backdrop is so stained and so dark by human sin, human brokenness. And some of your lives, that's, that's your life. For some of you, that's you. Your, your story was so dark. You, you look at your past and where you came from and who you once were, things that you don't even like to talk about today. You don't even like to think about it or let your mind wander there. And yet you, you sit here, part of a congregation, and you sit here and you marvel at God's grace. And that's it's kind of what's going on in Ruth, where God sometimes allows these moments in our lives to get so dark, so full of pain, so full of brokenness. And yet it's in those moments that God shines his brightest and his love comes and it melts our hardness of heart, it destroys our cynicism, and it removes our despondency, and it destroys our distrust in God, and it allows us to see God as beautiful and lovely, and we're changed. That's what the story is all about here. I mean, it's, it's so suggestive, but there's redemptive things that are constantly all throughout the story, in particular this night. So what happens, it says... Um, Ah, the second part of verse 7. It says, Then she came softly, she uncovered her feet, uncovered his feet, and lay down. And at midnight the man was startled and turned over 
And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And you imagine, um, Boaz was a man of impeccable character. Uh, we'll get more into this next week because uh, we'll see kind of the story progress. And what ends up happening is um, um, the, the story of Boaz, actually not next week, a couple of weeks from now, but the story of Boaz, he's linked inseparably to this guy by the name of Elimelech. And if you follow Elimelech's lineage all the way back, you kind of find out that this guy, Elimelech, who was married to Naomi, uh, was a man of, of basically royal lineage. So in other words, Boaz would be equivalent to like a, a Kennedy. Like he walked on the scene, he's like, what's up? I'm a Kennedy. Like everyone would be like, whoa, okay, he's a Kennedy. Like, guy deserves respect. That's who Boaz was. So here's Boaz in the middle of the night um, and wakes up in the middle of the night. Here's a, here's a woman laying at his feet. has no idea who this is. It's dark. Uh, his, his reputation's at stake. Her reputation's is at stake. Everything's at stake. Everything's up in the air. This, this whole story can go awry in any moment and take one of the most darkest turns, but that's not what happens. So what takes place is uh, in about verse 9. Listen to what Naomi, or, uh, Ruth says. He said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, we looked more so at this a few weeks ago, what it means to be a, a redeemer. But basically, in short, what this means is that when, when someone's husband died or son died, and say he owned an estate, owned a large piece of property, uh, the goal was to keep that property within the family name as long as they possibly could. And so if someone died, then obviously the land, for the most part, would be lost. And so God created a way, because at the end of the day, the land never belonged to the people. The land always belonged to God. God gave the land to whoever he chose. And so God says, because the land belongs to, my, belongs to me, I want to make sure that the land stays in the family, but here's the, the way I'm going to work this out. So if a husband dies and he has no children, I'm going to create a provision so that a living relative could actually marry into the family, have a child, and then redeem the land, purchase the land that once belonged to him, keep the land in the family name so that their name, the, the name of that son um, would actually be attributed to the dead, the dead in-law. Does that make sense? Following? Kind of? Okay. That was not at all convincing, but I'm just going to keep going on anyhow. Um, so the, the point of the matter is, is what, what ends up taking place is this guy, uh, Boaz, is actually a family member. He's a redeemer, which puts him in the running of being able to um, have a child and raise up a family lineage so that the name of Elimelech can continue on, even though Elimelech's been dead for who knows how many years, 10 years, 11 years, we don't know. He's been dead. So God created a way so that his name can continue on. All right, so that being said, here's what Ruth does. She goes into the house, or goes into um, Boaz. He wakes up in the middle of the night, says, who are you? And her response is very interesting, because she says, I'm your servant. Now, I kind of put in uh, parentheses right there, maid servant. And the reason why this is an important distinction is because there's a couple different words that could have been used here. Um, she didn't say, I'm your servant, like I'm a humble slave. Chapter 2, she actually uses that word. I'm a humble slave. I don't deserve anything. I don't have any rights. I don't have any privileges. Um, there's no entitlement. There's nothing I can claim as my own. But I humbly am asking you, please allow me to work on your farm. Uh, that's not the same word that she uses here. The word that she uses here can actually be translated as maidservant, which the word maidservant in the Old Testament was, was an interesting word that oftentimes was even used by uh, by wives, going to the husband saying, I'm your maidservant, so I can raise up a child under you. In fact, that's exactly the way that's actually used in Genesis chapter 30, verse 3. Um, there is a lady 
And she says, I'm, I'm your maidservant. And the whole point of being a maidservant in the context is so that I could have a child. So if, if I understand clearly what I think Ruth is trying to say to Boaz, and she goes on to say, um, cover me with the shadow or the, with, the, with your wing, with, uh, with the edge, hem of your garden, garment. It's the idea of saying, um, will you marry me? So she's actually proposing to Boaz to marry her. But by using the word maidservant, Something else, a lot of Hebrew scholars have pointed out that they think that what she's saying is that not only will you marry me, but will you marry me so that I can have a child and continue on the family name of my saddened mother-in-law who's lost her husband and lost everything. What's absolutely amazing about this is two things. One, Ruth was married for 10 years. No baby a long shot 10 years no baby no birth control back in that culture if you're if you were married and you didn't have babies it was always exclusively the woman's fault this is the way it was way it was male-dominated culture society men had the say that's the way it was they said it wasn't us even though it could have been so women didn't have a say it was always the woman's fault at least that's the way the culture would have dictated that and 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 ruth is so profound here she's saying Will you, will you marry me? You're a redeemer and raise up a child for me so that I can then give this child back to Naomi so that he could carry on the name of Elimelech who's been dead and gone from the story for a long time. This is so profound because for one, I mean, like I said, we don't even get this type of concept. We, we don't live like this. This is a such, such a foreign cultural concept to us. We just don't live like this. But in that day, in that culture, this absolutely takes Boaz back. Boaz by surprise. And this is one of the reasons why Boaz actually responds to her by saying this. Now my daughter, now he says this, verse 10. And he said, may, the, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter, for you have made this last kindness greater than the first in which you have not gone out after any young men, whether rich or poor, which very clearly implies Ruth's still young. She still has the option to go out, find another guy. She could have gone out after any other young guy throughout the entire people of Israel, but she chose not to go out after any other guy. She had no obligations to it. Why did she choose a relative? Because she's moved by the Hesed kindness of God, and she loves and is deeply committed to Naomi. All right. I got to breathe a little bit more realism into the story here. All right. Um, it might even ruin it for some of you. Um, but here's the deal. Boaz, as I already said, um, it's most scholars believe, um, Hebrew scholars especially, who's been studying these things hundreds of years longer before Christian scholars did, believe that Boaz was perhaps up to 40 years uh, Ruth Sr., all right? So if, if, if Ruth, let's just say, hypothetically, is late 20s, early 30s, that means that Boaz is probably 70 years old, 70 years old, maybe even older, all right? So 40 years difference. That's, that's kind of robbing the cradle, but we won't criticize that culture from our culture, okay? But the point of the matter is, is on top of that, Boaz was probably a retired army general, you know, fought for the people of Israel, uh, a man of valor. He had impeccable character. Like I said, he, he would have been identified as kind of like a Kennedy, man of renown. It's shocking to think that Boaz has never been married. 
So that actually leads to a big issue that a lot of Hebrew scholars have even suggested. Maybe Boaz was married, maybe he lost his wife, but it doesn't play into the story. It's not necessary or even important to the story. Maybe, this is where, again, it's going to ruin your, ruin your whole fairy tale. Maybe Ruth is being brought into a harem. You're like, oh, really? Did we have to know that? Look, we know for sure in a historical context, men oftentimes married many women. So we don't know that for sure. I'm not trying to ruin the story for you. I'm just trying to bring some realism into it. The point of the matter is this. We think of the story as being like this unbelievable, like, you know, romanticized love story between this young strapping guy who's like, you know, mid-30s and, you know, looks like Brad Pitt. And then this young strapping young lady who's just like gorgeous. And they spot each other in the field and the wind's just blowing, just short, you know, just breaths upon them. And just a spark of romanticism has kind of crept into our thinking. But in reality, and so we think what motivates the two of these guys throughout the entire storyline is their incredible romance for each other and i I don't doubt that there's romance there but like i've said from the beginning i think if that's the only thing that's there i I think we actually cheapen the whole storyline because i think what the story is actually telling us that what what actually fueled this incredible love story was the hased kindness and love of god that boaz was a man of god he loved god That Ruth was a a woman who loved God, made a commitment to God, made a commitment to God's people, made a commitment to a mother-in-law who was embittered and says, no matter how embittered you are, I will be there by your side. I will commit myself. I pledge myself to you never to leave your side through thick, through thin, through hardship, through great blessing. I will be there by your side all the way to the point where Ruth says, I will even get married have a child by God's grace, and I will end up giving that child to you. So take a look at this. I'll just jump forward real quick. Take a look at about chapter 4. About verse 13, it says this. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. So a miracle happened. She bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, uh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you the restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then verse 16, Naomi took the child and laid her on her lap and became a nurse. And the women of the neighborhood went around saying that a son has been born to Naomi. So get this, Ruth ends up giving her firstborn son to her mother-in-law and says, this is yours. Elimelech will never be forgotten, and you will never be forgotten in all Israel. And it was that act of unbelievable sacrifice that God was constantly in the story, moving in the story, entering in it, ultimately to bring about a Messiah. Through an incredible sacrifice. That's it. It's an amazing story. So with that, let's uh, jump back in here. I want to say another thing about this. Um, We see Ruth being very bold. I mean, there's, you can't deny this. I mean, Ruth is exceptionally bold. And what I find amazing about this is that it's an interesting thing for us as a, as a culture, as a history of people here in America. You know, obviously, we went through years ago, 60s, 70s, this whole thing of feminism. And a lot, I think, maybe on a very, very brief, uh, maybe even a caricature type of a, a background, what happened was a lot of women were very suppressed. A lot of it had to do, unfortunately, because of 
uh, religious type men did not know what to do with women. And so they a lot of times brought suppression upon them. Upon them and this kind of resulted in a major swing against that into radical feminism. And then that kind of led to a, sort of another reaction where a lot of ways men became very passive. And other men uh, became very aggressive, very, uh, very uh, chauvinist. And didn't know what to do with these women who spoke very loudly and had very strong opinions. And it sort of, for the most part, left men either being very passive, saying, all right, you take over, you do whatever you want to do. Or men saying, be quiet, know your place. Your place is in the kitchen wearing a robe, making children. And unfortunately, those, both of those responses and actions are false. They're not centered in the Bible, even though men may have thrown Bible verses around attached to those things. But it still raises the question, what do you do with women that are strong women? Because the typical response is strong women make weak men. Strong women create weak men. And what, what I, what I want to say is I think just kind of by way of a marginal note is that's not what we see in the book of Ruth. That the hypothesis that says strong women are going to make passive men is just simply not rooted in truth. It may be rooted in a cultural context in which we've lived in here because men perhaps don't know how to respond properly to women that are strong. But what I see in the book of Ruth is I see a very strong woman like Ruth, very strong, motivated by the love of God, the said kindness, affection, love of God. And what I see in response to that, I see Boaz becoming even a stronger man. And what happens is Boaz actually rises and he says, everything you ask me to do is absolutely, what you're doing right now is off the charts amazing. That's what he's saying. My translation. Like, I, I can't believe what you're asking me to do. Like, like, for one, she completely modified the plan of Naomi. Here's what Naomi said. Take a bath, put on some cologne or perfume, not cologne, put on some perfume, dress up in some nice clothes, go down, hang out next to Boaz, lay next to him, and the moment he wakes up, he'll tell you what to do. In other words, he will actively tell you what to do. What happens? She goes down, puts on her clothing and perfume, and then Boaz wakes up. What does she do? She actively engages the moment and says, will you marry me? And have a child with me? Like, normally that's not how you start a relationship. <laughs> but Ruth is a woman who's been touched by God's kindness. She has a cause. Her cause is her mother-in-law. She says, I love my mother-in-law. I'm moved by the kindness of God. I want to work. I want to do something on behalf of God who rescued me from Moab, from the Moabite gods, and who has rescued me and redeemed me, saved me, brought me in. And the beauty of it is, is that Boaz doesn't become passive. He becomes even a greater, stronger man of God. It's an amazing picture. The answer is not for women to shut up and stop talking and to somehow find their place that has absolutely nothing to do with any type of leadership role. But the response is that women lovingly are moved by the said kindness of God. That seems to be the element that has to be what moves all of us. Are we motivated by God's kindness? Or is it just gossip? Or is it just desire to be in control? Or is it just a desire to be heard? That wasn't Ruth's motivation. All the way from the very beginning, it was just a motivation to let God's love that shine upon her 
continue to shine through her to the lives of other people. And Boaz rises to that call and is moved by that as well. Wrap this up. So what we go on to see now is uh, Boaz makes a statement. He's like, this, this act of kindness is, is even greater than all of your other acts. Um, her first act of kindness was when she left Moab and said, I will never go back to my people, never go back to my gods. And I will covenant myself to you and follow you all the rest of the days of your life. First amazing act of sacrifice. Second act of sacrifice, she shows up in, in the fields during the harvest and doesn't just simply ask, hey, can I glean? But she says, can I glean and follow your harvesters? Pick up after them? In other words, can, can I get the best, best goods? Because I'm, I'm, I'm doing this for my, my mother-in-law. And Boaz is like, are you kidding? You're amazing. Of course. And I'll even give you more food. But Boaz says, this final act tops them all. What you're asking of me to marry you, what you're asking of me to impregnate you, to have a child, to carry on a seed, which you, you've already proven that you're infertile, is an unbelievable act of faith in Yahweh, in my God. And it's as if Boaz is saying, I'm so moved, so challenged by your faith, by your conduct, by your act of goodwill. I'll do everything that you ask. It's amazing how God does that. But we see this theme of God's kindness. I already mentioned it. We, we did a whole message on it a few weeks ago. On We just called it, the, the I think it was like the power of hesed or hesed in action or something like that. Um, if you weren't here, if you missed that, I encourage you to check out the sermon on our website. It's all free. You do have to, however, I have to warn you, you get what you pay for. But hopefully at least uh, pave a little bit of the background for you so that you understand this hesed kindness. This word hesed, this kindness of God is a difficult word to translate in the Old Testament. Um, it actually appears three times in the book of Ruth, and uh, Ruth 1.8, Ruth 2.20, and Ruth 3.10. But there's at least uh, four different things that we see that this type of love, this said kindness of God is all about. One, we see this great patience, because again, love, this said originates with God, but then it comes upon God's people and it changes God's people. Just like we saw with Naomi. Naomi was a changed person. Not because she just pulled herself up by her bootstraps and says, you know what, I'm tired of mourning, I'm good, I'm going to move on with my life, I'm going to just start being a blesser. It just doesn't work that way. People don't change that way. No matter how hard, no matter how difficult your life is, people don't just simply, I mean, you might walk away from your mourning, sometimes aided by your small community group of Jim Bean and Jack Daniels, but at the same time, you can't change your heart. God changes hearts. God changes hearts. And the only one that ultimately allows you to be removed from that pain, to go from pain, beyond pain, to be a blesser, is God. His kindness. His kindness has to change you. That's what we see. But first of all, we see that God's kindness is patient. It's patient. God's kindness demonstrates his patience. And we see it displayed through the lives of God's people in this story. They're patient. We don't see a bunch of people running out, trying to take control. Now, they're active. Don't, get me under, don't misunderstand me. They're active. They're working hard. But they're not trying to ultimately take things in their own hands and try to force things. They're, they're patient, waiting on God through this whole thing. And that becomes very clear throughout the story. The second thing that we see is that this type of love, redeeming love, is also pure in its actions. And this is an amazing reality because, again, this whole scenario, it's, like I said already, it's very sexually charged. But what we see in the story, 
nothing sexual happened. Nothing. I mean, Boaz could have done something to her. Boaz has power, he has authority, he can do whatever he wants. And, and Naomi, Ruth has no rights whatsoever. She's a Moabite. No one would ever believe the story of a Moabite. He could have raped her. He could have done anything, taken advantage of her, and he would have gotten away with it. He doesn't even as much lay a hand on her. It's totally pure. This is actually accentuated in the text by at least two things. First of which, the social context. All of this, remember, took place in the time of the judges. The time of the judges was a lawless time where people did what they want in their own eyes. The second thing that takes place in this story is some certain uh, literary devices that the author uses that original readers of the story would have been very familiar with. And again, they would have immediately associated this story with another story that's actually found in Genesis chapter 19. I'll just read you a very brief chunk of this because actually what's going on here is the original readers of this and people that would have been familiar with the story of Ruth and the story of the Bible would have immediately thought, wow, this is, this is not going to go good. Um, and here's, here's what happens. It takes us actually into the history of the Moabite people. A lot of people maybe aren't very familiar with the Moabite people, the history of them. I'm going to tell you what that story is. It goes like this, Genesis chapter 19. Now Lot went up and he lived in the hills with his two daughters, and he was afraid to live in Zoar, for he lived in the cave with his two daughters. Now what had happened was, you remember the story, Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, that whole entire story, most people are familiar with that. Lot's wife died. Remember, she became a pillar of salt. Well, what does Lot do? What's the story after Lot? Well, Lot takes his two daughters. Apparently he's freaked out. He's scared. Afraid that there's a conspiracy that's going to overtake him. He does what a lot of freaked out, conspiratorial type people do. He moves out in the mountains, raises pit bulls, homeschools his daughters. And that's all that's going on for the rest of his life. Living out in somewhere in the middle of the desert with his two daughters. Completely detached from all of culture and society. And, his, and he raises his two daughters. It's really freakish, alright? So that sets the stage for the even more freakish situation that takes place. Alright, ready for this? Alright, here's what happens. Verse 31 says, And the firstborn uh, said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. In other words, there's no one here to, that we can you know, have a baby with. Come, let us make our father drink with wine, and he will lie with us, and we will lie with him, and we will preserve the offspring from our father. So they made the father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and laid with her father. He did not know that she laid down, and when she rose, later on, about verse 34, down, the second daughter does the exact same thing. Verse 36, it says, thus, both of the daughters had Lot become pregnant. Uh, both of the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn son... And, and called his name Moab. He was the father of the Moabites. So the history of Ruth, this is where she came from. An incestuous relationship that started. So the storyline is, is very interesting. Because these literary, literary devices that are used here cause you to think. Two women plotting, scheming, uh, waiting for a guy to drink. And until he's married, go in and lay with him um, and wait and see what happens. So this whole story is, is fraught with these devices that cause you to think, oh boy, this may not go good. But what ends up happening is Ruth goes in, lays down with Boaz. No one touches each other. It's absolutely pure. And it sets the stage for one of the most profound entries of God into history. 
What I want to say to all of us here is that we live in a culture that's not unlike the time of the judges, where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Every premarital couple I sit down with, I always ask them, have you ever studied or done anything to try to understand the way the Bible talks about sex? Almost every single person tells me, I've I've never studied anything about sex. So then I usually come back and say, you've you've studied a lot, you may not know it. Uh, Who's taught you about sex is your older brother, uh, television, the locker room, um, your friends around you, television, movies. All of that has actually subtly trained you as to what sex is like. That everybody approaches the subject matter of sex having some sort of instruction about it. But the reality is, is the world in which we live in, is it's not a a pure understanding of sex. It's defiled. It's broken. It abuses it. And because it gets abused, because sex is just something that we engage in, and we do it, and we just don't even think about the consequences of it until the next day where we feel filthy and our hearts feel broken, and we feel defiled, and we wonder why it's just not working the way it is, is because what happens is we took something that God intended for good and for blessing. It was a gift that God gave to us as human beings and says, this is to be stewarded by you, to be used by you, not only for your enjoyment, but also to have children and to enjoy your spouse. But we disregard that, and, and we take it, and we abuse it, we misuse it. What ends up happening is it leaves us feeling broken and defiled. Let's, listen to how C.S. Lewis put this. It's great. He says, there isn't anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than about the pleasure of eating. It means, uh, it means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and digesting and chewing things and spitting them out. It's brilliant. Love the way he says that. It's like, look, the pleasure of sex is kind of similar to like eating really good food. Everybody loves to eat really good food. Even if you spit it out, throw it up, do whatever way that you can to purge it from your body, everybody loves food. We all do. But if you eat food and you indulge in it and you enjoy it only to either spit it out or to not somehow purge it from your body, then you are actually abusing food in the system of food that's intended to give you health, to give you life, to give you energy. It's part of a whole system. And C.S. Lewis's whole point is that it's the same thing with sex. Sex was intended by God to be a good gift from God, the creator, so that we would enjoy another person, but it's to be enjoyed only within the bounds of covenant, whereby two people bind themselves to each other. They make promises to each other out of love. And in that relationship, it's to be enjoyed. But what happens is we as human beings, we we basically take it from there, we try to separate it, and as a result of that, what ends up happening is we find ourselves left with brokenness. It's the world we live in. But the gospel comes into this and says, no, there's a different way. It does not have to go the way of the rest of history. Because we know we have the power of God that's come into history, that's rewriting history, that's changing the course, setting a new trajectory. So it does not have to be defiled. Even though the writer of Ruth sets the stage and there's all these nuances and all these triggers that somehow lead us to this original entry point of the Moabite people into history, and the writer writes it in a way to say, it didn't go that way. Why? 
God has said was at work. He rewrote the story. Some of you need the story of your life rewritten. You need it rewritten. Because you've not done things the way that God intended. God doesn't throw things down for us and say, do this, follow this as a means of somehow just dictating rules and regulations to us. God says these things because he knows that if we break these things, then somehow we break ranks with the system that leads to life. And it leads to defilement and impurity. In the story of Ruth, God, God reveals to us that things don't have to go that path. There is a way to redeem even sexuality in sexually charged circumstances. They don't have to go the way of the way every movie typically goes. Or the way every some sort of love novel tends to just sort of digress. Or the way that every other relationship around us in their secular society ends up going. It does not have to go that way. That it can actually be redeemed. This is to both single and married people, mind you. All of us, that it can be redeemed. That's what we see in the stories. That God has said his kindness changed even the course of of a sexually charged circumstance to where God gets glory. Sets the stage for some of the most unbelievable entry point, or the most unbelievable entry point of God into this story. So we not only see that this redemptive love is not only patient, it's pure, but it also protects. We see Boaz being brought in this story, saying that he'll protect. And finally, we see, fourthly, it perpetuates itself. And this idea, we've already kind of looked at this, that when somebody is moved by God's has said kindness and they, they're penetrated by it, it moves them to show kindness to other people. Naomi, case in point, she's changed by God's kindness. Now she makes it her life's goal to show kindness to Ruth. Ruth's changed by God's kindness. And so she makes her life goal to show kindness to Naomi. Boaz is sitting there on the sideline, gets brought into the whole storyline and is moved by Ruth's kindness for her mother-in-law and he's moved by her kindness and is like I gotta enter in and help be a part of this you guys that in short is the gospel God enters our broken stories our broken lives we've made messes of Things in which we've taken control, and as we've taken control of things, it's brought about destruction and defilement and brokenness. And yet God initiates something brand new. He initiates on the basis of His free love displayed to us, ultimately, predominantly through His Son's death on the cross. He invites us. Gospel is not just simply something to be recited or some sort of creed to memorize. The gospel is an invitation where God welcomes us, calls us to say, leave behind your past brokenness, your life that's destroyed, and come follow me and I will redeem you. That's the gospel. God showed kindness to us undeserving sinners. We're going to respond. We're going to respond in worship. I'm going to have Mike come on up and lead us in some songs of worship. We'll respond and partake in communion. Communion is a way for us to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's one of the reasons why Paul's pretty emphatic about it. He says, look, if you partake of communion, make sure that you do it in a way that's worthy. I think in short, simply that means that if you're a recipient of God's love, 
And either you're still living in sin, you're not living with a grateful heart, or maybe you're withholding forgiveness to other people. I think Paul's point is to say, that's not the gospel working in your life. The way the gospel works is you've been forgiven, you forgive. You've been redeemed, you seek redemption. You've been transformed, you seek to be somebody who helps to transform other people's lives. You've been accepted and received, so therefore you accept and receive people. Mentality that so oftentimes can be prevalent in religious circles that say, I'm saved, everybody else isn't, therefore we're better, they're not. It's foreign to the Bible. It's foreign. It's foreign. It's incongruent. It's totally incongruent with the heart of God. God does not know that type of attitude. But the gospel says, because I've been forgiven, because I've been accepted, God calls me to accept, to love, to forgive, to be a reconciler to other people that may need that same type of reconciliation that I was so in desperate need of myself. That's what we're called to join, to participate, to be part of. So we'll partake of communion, we'll sing, we'll confess sin, we'll repent. And we'll just worship our God, who is an amazingly good God. This is why we love Jesus so much. Because of what he's done for us. God, we uh, ask you right now that your word, as it's been sown in our hearts, that it would generate an appropriate response of worship and affection in our hearts. God, if there's sin that we need to confess, we want to confess that. God, if we're walking in darkness, we want to stop walking in darkness, repent from that, walk in light. God, if we have sinned, we want to seek forgiveness from sin. If we've been sinned against and we feel defiled, we want to run to you and find what it means to be made pure again. So Lord, right now we pray that you would come and demonstrate and show and put on display your said kindness here that changes lives and changes hearts. Let it be so among us here right now.